Coming up on Tech Nation, Dr. Guy Winch, a psychologist. He works with individuals, couples, and families in Manhattan and writes the blog Squeaky Wheel for Psychology Today. He's here with How to Fix a Broken Heart. Then on Tech Nation Health, what exactly is a pediatric oncologist? We often mention that our chief correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, is a pediatric oncologist. He tells us what it's like. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Well, we can now decode the human genome. That would be anyone's human genome, and relatively cheaply, by the way. We often hear that as significant an accomplishment as that is, is akin to the value of having one telephone. Yep, if you had one and only one telephone and no one else did, then who are you going to call? Until the people that matter to you get telephones, and in the world, until everyone gets a telephone, your phone is just an interesting piece of tech. But today, with ubiquitous communications, if you're unreachable by phone, well, that would be a story. Also, the value of the telephone is about what you say on it, or these days, what you text on it, or it's transmitting photos or video. It's what you use it for. Why it matters relates to how it fits into your life or your work or whatever. That greater context and what we use it for defines and creates its value. Thus, no singular set of genetic data has much value. And even a whole lot of genetic data may have limited value. Sort of like if the only people with telephones didn't want to talk to each other. To be valuable... Genetic data has to be put into a greater context, and that's just what happened. New York Times journalist Carl Zimmer writes about a study published in the journal Science, where researchers at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine were able to look at 225,000 patients from Vanderbilt's huge electronic medical record system. These were the people who had signed up as volunteers for genetic research. Two major points should be made here. The genetics data was just part of it. The medical records themselves came from the Vanderbilt University Medical Center, and all kinds of information was available. There were other tests, the treatments prescribed, the results, you name it. An entire context of data enveloped the genetic data that could now be decoded. The second point is perhaps the more telling for what is going on today. You go to the doctor, and whatever you have has to fit into the diagnostic disease parameters we have. These identified diseases are a product of last millennium science, and even then could not include a great swath of genetic data. But today, it's a whole new game. The researchers were surprised by what they found. 
diseases which normally require two copies of a defective gene to manifest themselves, that is both from mom and dad, so you have no working copy of the gene. But what if you had one copy that worked and one that didn't? Is it enough? You might not manifest identifiable symptoms for possibly decades, and by then, perhaps you'd need a liver or kidney transplant. You were limping along with some low-level symptoms, and nobody could put their finger on it. So let's genetically test everyone. The researchers certainly thought that in the long run, we should do exactly that. Decode the whole genome of everyone at birth. But is that realistic? Zimmer points out such a policy would create an unmanageable glut of genetic data. But that word unmanageable is in the present, with present-day technology. But look at it another way. It just defines the problem the engineers and computer scientists have to solve. And now that the problem is defined, they will. Just give it a little time. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Technation, Dr. Guy Winch, a psychologist working with individuals, couples, and families in Manhattan, he writes the blog Squeaky Wheel for Psychology Today, and you may know his work in the science of emotional health. Then on Technation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about his work as a pediatric oncologist. Psychologist Dr. Guy Winch has written the book How to Fix a broken heart. Well, Guy, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you very much for having me. Now, if you would, would you read the first paragraph from your book? I'll be happy to. The storm of heartbreak strikes like a hurricane. At times we are alerted to its arrival by an early forecast of ominous signs. Often it catches us by surprise a conversation that takes a startling turn or an unexpected text as we busily go about our day. Either way, when the storm touches down, it lands hard. The wind batters our sense of security and certainty. The icy rain soaks every nook and cranny of our being, from the part of us that is a capable professional to the part that's a devoted parent or a passionate artist or a weekend partier. We squint at the world through glasses tinted by emotional pain, fearing that dark clouds will never break. Unlike real hurricanes, heartbreak has no eye. It offers no reprieve, and it leaves no place to take shelter. We thus remain exposed, drenched, and miserable until it passes. That's heartbreak, and heartbreak is excruciating, 
And if you live long enough, you will suffer it. I think really most of us will at some point in our lives. There are various definitions of what heartbreak is, but it's really something that's quite universal. Most frequently we think a broken heart comes from something to do with romantic love, but there are many causes. There are many causes of a broken heart. I think the most excruciating is the one associated with romantic love, but people feel heartbroken when their team loses the Super Bowl or the playoffs, and they feel heartbroken when they didn't get a part in the school play or when they drop and break a vase that was passed down from generation to generation. So it's the kind of thing that we express in our lives uh, rather frequently and in all kinds of contexts. In fact, in the book, you focus on two, which you are absolutely clear are not exclusive. One is the what you suffer from the breakup of a romantic love, but also when you lose a very well-loved pet. And I chose those two because they have something very dramatic in common, and that is that when those things happen, we can experience severe grief responses, ones that rival the grief we would experience when a first-degree relative died, and yet both of those kinds of loss are not really sanctioned. No one's going to work saying, oh, you know, I need a few days off because my cat died. And if you're not getting an official divorce going in and saying, you know, I can't really function well for the next few days because my girlfriend broke up with me is also going to not land well in most companies. And so we have these situations in which people are going through excruciating emotional pain, going through these very drastic and dramatic experiences, and yet the social support, the institutional support we would expect in other forms of grief is absent. In fact, you write that uh, heartbreak is all around us, but it's invisible. And that's the thing about emotional pain. It is invisible. We are bleeding emotionally. is not discernible to the naked eye. And so we tend to respect it less. We tend to pay attention to it much less. It's easier to ignore than it is sheer physical pain when we see it on, in others. And that creates a problem unto itself, that people who experience it um, feel sometimes embarrassed that they're feeling as strongly as they do. Others don't realize it and therefore don't offer them the kind of compassion they should. And so it's a, it's a much iffier bag to, to have emotional pain if you compare it to what we experience when we're in physical pain. And while you say that heartbreak happens in the brain, uh, science tells us that it affects the entire body. And that is also very true. It's one of those things we have to really recognize that heartbreak does a number on us in all kinds of ways. But one of the things that we don't recognize is that it does so physically as well. So it can actually repress the functioning of our immune system. And the stress we experience around it um, can also do that. Um, in addition to that, there is broken heart syndrome. And that is a rare condition. It is rather rare. People shouldn't think, oh, that's what I have. It's rather rare, but it's a situation in which your broken heart can cause you to experience what looks like cardiac symptoms. And you will actually get all kinds of elevated numbers in your readings of certain neurotransmitters and certain hormones. And the idea is you do not have uh, permanent cardiac uh, damage, but you can absolutely go through something that mimics a heart attack from heartbreak. And that is a 
situation that's actually pretty severe. And so there are all kinds of ways in which we are physically assaulted by heartbreak, in which it really does a number on us in terms of our brain and in terms of our body. Now, how does science study heartbreak? So I'm going to give you an example of one of the experiments people did, um, just to give you a sense of it. In other words, heartbreak is studied in many different contexts. And so if you're looking at, well, let's look at the pain aspect of it. How do they do that? Well, in one experiment, they recruited volunteers who had recently been through a painful breakup. And they had them lie in a functional MRI machine, a brain scanner, when they had taped the picture of the person who broke their heart to the top of the tube, because you're lying in a tube, you're staring up at the person who broke your heart, and they were asked to relive the breakup um, while the imager looked at what was happening in their brain. And these were people for whom the breakup was quite fresh. So A, that's an example of how something is studied. What they found in this experiment is that incredibly similar areas of the brain were activated when these subjects were feeling the emotional pain as were activated when they feel physical pain. And what they did then is they took the same subjects and they attached um, heat inducers to their forearms where it went from mild to unpleasant to intolerable levels of heat, so significant physical pain. And they did a comparison to see, well, the emotional pain they experienced, what level of physical pain does that compare to? And on a scale of 1 to 10 of physical pain, where 10 was marked as unbearable, it was comparable to an 8. So that is almost unbearable physical pain is what we experience when we're experiencing emotional pain. It's that equivalent, except that, if you think about it, physical pain usually comes in sharp bursts when you break a limb, something like that. It really hurts. There's a shock of it for a moment. But then it throbs. Emotional pain goes on and on for minutes and hours and days and weeks and sometimes months. And so that's what we're laboring under when our heart is broken, an extremely challenging condition. Does this come on suddenly? It, I mean, we frequently the situations are unexpected. Can it come on suddenly or can it grow? It can be sudden for most people, even if people are seeing it coming, um, there's a point in which it's apparent that there was a breakup or that there was a loss, and that's when it gets very, very sharp. Now, the really important part here is it depends how you then respond to that loss. And I don't mean how you respond reflexively, what your feelings are, what your thoughts are, but what, how you assert control over your response, what you choose to do and not do, what you choose to indulge and not indulge. But there's certainly... A lot of our default responses, the autopilot responses we have to heartbreak that will actually make things worse and make our pain actually increase as time goes by. Actually, there are a number of stories that you weave throughout the book, but, but two stand out in contrast. One is about Kathy and a romantic relationship, and the other is Ben, whose dog passed away, his long-beloved dog had passed away. The early days, it's a little difficult to be talking about corralling your resources, isn't it? Yes, and of course I do have the sensitivity to contain that uh, part of it uh, in a session when, when it's very, very fresh. I think when it's very, very fresh, uh, and I mean very fresh as in the first hours, the first days, then really it's about providing uh, social and emotional support. It's really about allowing the person to talk, to process 
the loss, to go through their recollections, their memories, their feelings, to try and understand what happened, to try and deal with the immediate aftermath. Uh, you know, uh, corralling your resources and kind of taking control and taking charge does happen at a bit of a later stage. But how late that stage is really can depend on the person, the magnitude of the loss, all kinds of other variables. But there certainly is a point where you find yourself repeating the same stories, having the same thoughts over and over again. You're actually not processing new things. You're not reaching new insights. You're not uh, recollecting new memories. Uh, you're just, at this point, starting to go around and around like uh, an emotional hamster wheel. And certainly that's the point in which we have to realize that mm, uh, there's something that's not progressing here. I need to assert some kind of external or purposeful action or control uh, to make sure I keep moving ahead in my recovery so I don't get stuck in this loop of just going through the same painful memories and moments and conversations over and over and over again. Are women different from men in this regard? Not that I find, and not that the research finds. There's, there's some differences in how we express certain things, as, uh, and those are based on gender, those are based on culture, religion. Uh, we all have our favorite coping and defense mechanisms, and those are the ones that will come to the fore when anything happens to us, big or small. So given that, we'll all have a slightly different way of dealing the people who want to not think about it or not talk about it and just distract themselves and move on versus the people who need to process every possible detail of it and repeatedly. So it's going to vary how we respond, and that variation is going to really be a factor of all kinds of variables. Is this any different than the process of grieving? Uh, many societies, many religions have rituals which actually assist us in grieving death, for example. And recovering in those cases involves a number of processes and sometimes days and weeks of prescribed behavior. Is it any different than those grieving processes? So that's a wonderful question because this is exactly what we're seeing in terms of the science that the grieving or the uh, really subjective experience of the person can be extraordinarily similar to what they would experience in more traditional or accepted forms of grieving, for example, the death of a first-degree relative. So your internal experience might be very, very similar. Now, there is a reason most cultures and societies have these rituals for helping person, uh, people get over grief and get over loss because we know that that social support is incredibly important. When we're in the full throes of initial grief, it is very difficult to function full stop. In a, literally to function in the most basic way. We will have trouble sometimes, you know, bathing and eating. That's the level of function that we're struggling with, let alone going to work or to school or functioning in other kinds of ways. And this is where communities are involved. This is where communities come in in many of these rituals for grief to assist with functioning as well as with support. And the statement there is about this is how affected we are by these kinds of losses. 
And then again, this brings me to the fact that when it is about heartbreak, when it is about pet loss, which for some people can be literally incredibly significant and as significant as any other kind of loss, um, they don't get all of that. They don't get people swooping in to help them with meals, to help them with functioning, to really be with them, see them through things, recollect, remember, process. Um, all of that doesn't happen. So it just makes the situation so much more difficult uh, and so much harder to get over because those cultural rituals are actually really useful um, for the emotional and psychological process uh, of grief. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Guy Winch, a psychologist. He works with individuals, couples, and families in Manhattan, and he writes the blog Squeaky Wheel for Psychology Today. You may well have read about his work regarding the science of emotional health. He's here today with How to Fix a Broken Heart. Well, a social media dating website may have gotten you into this relationship, but social media can be problematic in helping you recover. Social media is a double-edged sword, for sure, when you're trying to recover from heartbreak. Now, if you think about it, um, here's why it's a double-edged sword. There's a lot of options for support. You have a lot of people who can reach out to you, who can express concern, more than can really do so realistically by calling you or certainly by visiting you. People who are far away can reach out and offer support. But here's where it becomes tricky. When your heart is broken, your basic task of recovery, if you think about it, is to diminish the presence of that person in your thoughts over time. They are taking up probably 100% of your, uh, you know, uh, thinking uh, and waking hours uh, at the beginning. And that's to be expected. But over time, recovery means that they have less of a starring role in your mind, that you move them along more to a, uh, a character actor than to a bit player, than to an extra, and then off the stage entirely. So the way to do that is to ask yourself, is the thing that I'm doing, the action that I'm taking, the thought that I'm having, is that going to help reduce the presence of this person in my mind or make it bigger? And the problem with social media is that we then have access to the person, to their life, to their posts. We can see them where they're going, where they're checking in, what things they're posting. Uh, we can see videos of them sometimes. We can really get access. And it's not useful for us because it's going to be extraordinarily tempting to stay in touch, quote-unquote, via the person's social media accounts and their pages and their updates. And that is something that it can satisfy our curiosity insofar as we have any, but it's really going to be bad for us because it keeps that person front and center in our thoughts and in our minds. And when we see, as we will, that they are not in the pain that we are in, primarily because People don't usually post that on social media, even if they were, but they're the ones who broke up with us, so they're not likely to be. And when we see that, that's just going to make us hurt more. It's going to make us feel more victimized. It's going to make us feel worse. And so it's not a good thing for us to see, but the temptation is powerful. And so that's why it's a double-edged sword. It can be a tool for support on the one hand, but it can lead us down too many rabbit holes on the other. So once you're over the initial shock, those early days, weeks, whatever, the, the initial overwhelming, paralyzing emotion here, then one of the things that tells us, then the next 
job, if you will, is to do everything so that it will not take up real estate in your mind, in your emotions. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, and here's why that happens, by the way, because um, you are working against a foe here, and your foe is your own mind. Because the way we evolved, we there is a much higher survival value on avoiding negative things than on seeking positive ones. And so our mind evolved to make us remember threats. And if something hurts, think of if you touch a hot stove as a child, that's really going to hurt. And every time you see the hot stove thereafter, you're going to think about it because it's very important for your mind that you remember, ooh, that was painful, don't do that again. Now, that works wonderfully when it's a hot stove or when we hear a growl in the bushes and, and we are you know, nomadic hunter-gatherers. Terrific mechanism. But when it's about our happiness, when it's about I need to get over this heartbreak so I can seek love again, then our mind is actually has a different agenda. Our mind's agenda is, wow, this hurts so much, I'm going to make sure you won't forget it. I'm going to remind you of this as much as possible. I'm going to keep it fresh in your mind as much as possible. I'm going to keep the pain as fresh as I possibly can. That's my only way of making sure you don't make this mistake again. But this mistake, insofar as falling in love is one, is one we do want to be able to make again. So we have to recognize that our instincts in these moments, and again, you're absolutely right, after the initial shock of it, at that point our instincts and our gut and what happens in our head uh, is most likely going to be working against our purposes and not in uh, favor and support of them. And that's when we have to kind of assert control over what's going on. Many times it's easier to observe in others rather than our own experience. And, and we've all seen in others going through experiences like this that they go after the details again and again. And you say this behavior is like a drug addict. And that's another interesting experiment that people did here, that they looked at the brain of people who were heartbroken. And what they found was that the same areas are being activated as they were seeing being activated when addicts were withdrawing from substances like cocaine and opioids. It's these pleasure centers of the brain and and certain neurotransmitters, uh, which are becoming very, very active in those moments. And if you think about the first moments, for those of you who've had the experience of being heartbroken, there is an absolute desperation that comes with it. There's an absolute compulsion to try and get that person back by any means, to text them and message them and beg and stalk them on social media and do all of these things that really are out of character for you. It's just not something you would typically do, but the desperation you feel is making you do those things. And in part, you know, it have to understand that why you keep having these intrusive thoughts of the person, why you feel so compelled to do the thing you know isn't good for you, is because that is your brain craving the substance that will make it feel better. In this case, the substance is the person, and it's not one you can have. And so often we'll go instead of for the quote-unquote heroin for the methadone, and that means the best we can do is, well, let me go and look at all the pictures that we have together, then we were happy, and the videos they sent me, and the memories, and that's a way of getting a fix, in a way. But it is going to set you back. That is addict behavior. Um, And in the same way, heroin is bad for people, and they know it, even as they're seeking it out desperately, 
but they just can't stop. And it's difficult to stop these behaviors, but certainly the first step in doing so is recognizing why you're feeling the compulsion so strongly and why the behavior that you feel compelled to act out is probably not going to be good for you. I'm speaking with Dr. Guy Winch, the author of How to Fix a Broken Heart. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about being a pediatric oncologist. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with psychologist Dr. Guy Winch about the science of fixing a broken heart. It's not just about a romantic breakup. Your heart can break with the loss of an extended family member that no one realizes you were close to, or a beloved pet, and more. On the human side, though, sometimes our hearts are broken by betrayal. We've been talking about a breakup. Is a deep betrayal within a relationship any different? A deep betrayal is different um, in the sense that the relationship, if it's within the relationship, the relationship is in that moment intact. Um, Often after a deep betrayal, you have then a decision to make about whether you want to uh, salvage the relationship or not, whether it's something that can be uh, mended and whether that's something that's worth investing in. The pain of a betrayal is the a different kind of pain than the pain of heartbreak. Um, it is extraordinarily painful. You feel as though you've lost something for sure, and what you've lost is your um, idealized notions of what the relationship was and who that person was because you never thought they would do that and you never thought it would happen in your relationship. There's all kinds of reckoning that you have to have and that you go through in that circumstance. But 
it does feel, after a betrayal, like the ball is in your corner in some way that it does not um, when uh, when there's a heartbreak. So there, you you have the option is almost yours in the betrayal scenario when it's absolutely not in the heartbreak scenario, and that can make a very big difference in terms of how it feels and how we cope. Now, in the heartbreak scenario, many people, in going over these details with their friends, say, I just want closure. I just want to know why. And yet the person may have told them why, and they just don't believe it. That is also true and unfortunate, because the pain is so significant of heartbreak. It is such uh, drastic pain that part of our brain thinks, well, if something's so painful, it must have a really dramatic reason. And just, well, I'm no longer in love or I drifted emotionally feels so pedestrian and undramatic. It feels like, well, it couldn't be just be that. There had to be more. And what compounds this is that when people are thinking of leaving a relationship, however short-term, long-term, whatever it is, they are thinking about that for a long time before they voice it. It's not one of those things we just impulsively say, hey, I had a thought of leaving you. We, we, we don't do that. There's no reason to. We think it through. We toss it around. We put it aside. It comes up again. So by the time that announcement is made, by the time the breakup happens, one person has been, quote-unquote, dealing with a breakup and thinking about a breakup for a very long time, while the other hasn't at all. And that's the other thing that can make us completely shocked and think, well, there's got to be more to it than that, because just last week, things were okay. Just last month, they sent me this lovely card. Just two weeks ago, we were on vacation. And that is true, but things weren't okay. They were just not ready to tell you that they were not. And so they were faking it. They were hiding that. And so that's why to you, it seemed like, well, how could they have been so expressive and so present and so loving one week and be so switched off the other? And again, it's misleading. They weren't. They were just faking it until they felt ready to tell you. And that's, that's how we break up. No one is going to say it until they're reasonably sure that there's something worth saying there. Uh, but it leaves the other person feeling so bewildered and sure that, well, there must, something must have happened then in that last week between the last time they said, I love you and I want to break up. But they have to realize nothing did. The only thing that happened was the accumulation of the thinking re, you know, reached a critical point and the person then actually told you that. And so you're not going to get closure that feels very, very satisfying, because it's also very unlikely that the other person's going to sit there and say, okay, here's the thing. Here are your annoying habits. Here's what <laughs> I didn't like about you. Here's why I couldn't stand your parents and your cat smells. It's just not going to happen. And so you're never going to get that. You have to accept that the satisfying explanation is not going to be forthcoming. So just deal with the best one you've given, you were given, or the best one you can come up with, and put that matter to rest. It's one thing to have the breakup of a relatively short-term relationship, but for those that break up with long-term relationships of any sort, marriage or just simply a very long-term relationship, what is so important about that breakup as opposed to the short-term one? Well, the longer we're in a relationship, the more we modify our lives to accommodate it the more we give up our favorite toothpaste because this is the one we as a couple use. And that friend I drifted away from because that was my friend when I was single 
and now I'm not, so I just tend to see them less. And these are the activities I like doing, but my partner doesn't, so I don't quite do them anymore. They're all these accommodations we make. Even if you think about it, our sense of identity, our pronoun use. It's the, well, we did this. How was your vacation? Well, our vacation was terrific. Even the pronoun use is different. Our sense of identity, we think of ourselves as a couple. We are us and the other person. And so all of that, um, the longer you're in the relationship, the more you've accommodated the more your sense of identity as a single person has diminished and you have a sense of identity as a couple's person. And all of those things can be much starker and then you know, create a much bigger crisis after a breakup than in a short-term relationship where you can kind of go back to the life you had before pretty easily or pretty quickly. There's not a substantial amount of rebuilding. Uh, there is emotionally, but not in terms of your actual you know, daily life that you need to do. But after a long-term relationship, the most basic aspects of your life, like where you live and what you do and who you see and all of those things, how you think of yourself, have changed, and so it makes the adjustment and the recovery especially much more complicated, more arduous in that way. You talk about a study using a technology I'm not familiar with, FEMG. What's that, and uh, what can you study with it? So FEMG um, is a uh, technique to read um, facial expressions. I think that's the study that you're referring to. Yes. Um, and um, it, it, the study was actually looking at self-concept. And it was looking at how quickly do we recover our sense of self, our sense of who we are um, after a breakup. And what does that say about our well-being after a breakup? And the study was done both by questionnaire and by looking at these very, very minute facial responses, which indicate emotional reactions but are not discernible to the uh, naked eye. And so they had this cross-validation of their findings, both from questionnaires and from the, um, uh, from, from the readings of these uh, facial muscles and, 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 and facial structures. And what they found is that the people whose self-concept was less well-formed, was less uh, rehabilitated after the breakup, um, had uh, weaker emotional well-being. In other words, the idea of reconstituting your sense of self and your self-concept is one that will help you in your recovery and give you a stronger sense of well-being and stronger self-esteem and a, uh, better emotional health um, if you really make that adjustment in your recovery as opposed to people who had not made that adjustment yet. And that technique was just one to, they used to verify uh, responses because it does catch these minor uh, uh, muscular changes which can then uh, be indicative of, of uh, the person's feelings about certain things. Ooh, we can see it in your face. There's good science. <laughs> no, no, no. We cannot. That's my point. The naked eye cannot. You've got to walk around with a big machine, which we're not doing. So uh, we can't see darn, it in your face. <laughs> darn, darn, uh, We've been talking about humans, and we've talked a little about losing a pet. Um, but we that's sort of a black box, losing a pet. Some people and some pets are far more connected than other people and other pets. So... Can you talk to us a little about how connected humans are to their pets? 
Yes, and I think that you're completely right. In other words, our relationship with pets really runs a broad range of uh, emotional involvement and connection and, uh, and how integrated they are into our daily lives. You know, there are people who have uh, pets that are not that attached to them. You know, they're kind of... I mean, they probably love them and all, but they're not an integral part of their daily lives. And, um, and you know, I, I'm in New York City. I work with a lot of people who, despite this being uh, such a big city, do not have a wide circle of uh, social relationships and familial relationships. And what they do have, they're living alone, but they live with a dog or they have their two cats. And these pets are not just pets for them. They consider them family members. They talk about them as family members. They're not ashamed to call them family members. And they literally feel that they are family members. They are their immediate family. And unlike their other immediate family that they see maybe once a year when they go home for the holidays or they talk to once a week or once a month, these furry, or not furry, some, not all animals are furry, but these pets who are family members are part of their daily life. They see them every day. They get their unconditional love and support all the time. You know, they get exercise because they take the dogs to the dog run. And they feel good because they take care of their cats and that makes you feel good when you caretake another animal. And they sit and they, you know, watch TV with their pets around them and they sleep with their pets in their bed. And they post pictures of their pets online and are members of groups with similar breeds or animals. And a big part of their life is about their relationship with their pets. And so if their pet dies, it is going to be a massive, massive blow. Their heart is truly going to be broken, and they're going to take it extremely hard. And unfortunately, a lot of them are also going to uh, feel silly for feeling that bad, because after all, it's just an animal, it's just a pet. And when people come to me and talk about these things, they almost always say, well, this might sound silly, but... Or you're probably thinking I'm being stupid or childish or ridiculous, but... And I have to reinforce incredibly strongly that there is nothing silly or childish or immature about feeling bereft when an animal that was such a significant part of your life provided so much companionship, such consistent and unconditional love and support and did so much for you uh, when you lose that animal. And sometimes after 15 years, 20 years, you know, years of your life, yes, it's devastating. There's nothing silly about that. Now, there's lots you can read in this little book, <laughs> this TED book. Uh, but one thing I wanted to leave on is when can you healthfully go out and seek a new partner or or a new pet? And when is too early? I think you need to do it before you feel ready because we're going to feel ready at a much later point than we probably are. Um, and now if you're trying to go on a first date and you're sitting there through the first date talking incessantly about your ex and crying, you're not ready. Um, and... Um, but if you are thinking, oh, well, this one looks kind of interesting, maybe I'll swipe right on this one, maybe there's room, um, then maybe you are ready. In other words, it's a trial and error process. And it's all right to go out on a casual date for a cup of coffee. And if you feel like you can't even fake it, then you're not ready. And if you feel, you know what, I can fake it, but um, even though they were great, I just have no interest because I'm not quite there yet, then you're not quite there yet. Um, with animals, um, 
I, I think the sooner you can feel that you can get another pet, it will probably help. We know from the research that getting another pet and getting back into dating when you can um, does help. It does help you move forward. So you just have to have your finger on your own pulse of, um, is that something I can you know, do and then come around to? Uh, but if you actually just wait until you feel, well, now I'm ready, you probably were ready a little bit before. So when it comes to pet, I would do it sooner rather than later if you can. And when it comes to dating, as soon as there's minimal interest, even with great skepticism, but minimal interest in maybe meeting someone new, give it a try and see. Well, Guy, Dr. Winch, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you come back and talk to us again another time. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. My guest today is Dr. Guy Winch. The book is How to Fix a Broken Heart. It's a TED original published by Simon & Schuster. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Today on Tech Nation Health, what exactly is a pediatric oncologist? We often mention that our chief correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, is a pediatric oncologist, and we've come to find out not everyone knows what that means. Daniel explains. Well, pediatrics, taking care of kids usually 18 and under, and then oncology, the field of cancer, which again is a really broad field, everything from leukemias and lymphomas to brain cancers. How early does that start? I mean, when do children develop cancer? Some develop it and are even born with them, uh, or shortly after birth in the first few months. Uh, one of the more common solid tumors is neuroblastoma, which can present in the first few months of life or uh, you know, through five or six years of age, one of those really difficult, challenging ones to, to cure still, still today. While we all have many different kinds of cancer, is it different given the age of the child? Yeah, well, one of the challenges of treating children with a cancer is that they're still growing. And uh, a therapy, let's say radiation therapy to the brain to maybe get rid of a tumor or residual leukemia cells can have significant downstream costs to their brain development and even risk of developing second or third cancers later in life. So we have to kind of take the holistic picture uh, in the double-edged sword of, of a therapy. And today, sadly, still most of our therapies that are even quite successful in treating, for example, standard uh, pediatric leukemias and lymphomas um, are drugs we've had around for, for decades. Uh, we've worked very hard to make them less toxic, but uh, we do know that there's a risk of those children or even adults being treated for cancers of developing secondary cancers later because the sort of big gun chemotherapy often targets and damages DNA and normal tissue and gives it a higher risk for developing cancers and other challenges later in life. So we have to, as pediatric oncologists or oncologists in general, need to sort of balance the, the, the risks and, you know, the risk of hopefully not having the child survive with some of the downstream elements. When you first meet a patient and you first meet his or her parents, everybody's very excited <laughs> and not in a good way. Right. I mean, it, it's super, and you know, not when I did my training, I wasn't a parent, but I have a high, much higher appreciation for the stressors involved when you have a young child or even you're a teenager develop uh, a cancer. And you as a oncologist and the whole team is really not just treating the patient, but the, the family as well. Uh, there's a incredible stress. Uh, the psychology of, again, treating the child 
differs with their age. How you want to communicate to a two-year-old versus a 12-year-old is, is very different. And you know, getting up to speed with all the things that happen from the diagnostic period through therapy to follow-up to the often many years of waiting to make sure that cancer does not come back is, is a whole family-based integrative process. Give us a profile of the various responses you get from parents, because I'm sure you get many different reactions, if you will, and you've got to deal with each of them differently. Yeah, there's just like each of us have different personality types. The the parents, the family unit, you know, including the sibling elements, play a role. Some are, you know, we're going to go full guns. We're going to go and we're going to beat this and treat it as a... Um, they picked the wrong person. They picked yeah, the wrong a, family. Well, as, as, a, as, a, as a war and... You know, you want parents to advocate and be on top of it. There's always a challenge in any clinical setting, including with adults, of, you know, how much is the, the parent or the patient uh, an advocate versus, you know, getting in the, their own way and second-guessing. You know, you need to be part of the team as well. So there's a whole thing you need to, f- to feel out. Um, and, you know, the, the best patients are, and their family members are curious, they're proactive, they engage, they get second opinions, uh, but they're not sort of tr- sometimes treating the clinical team and staff in a hostile way, partly because they're so stressed out and have so much, you know, challenges in in, uh, in, man- in managing both the diagnostics, the therapy, which doesn't always happen in the hospital, but at home, learning to change IVs and antibiotics and when to be worried, a lot of things at play here. And we now have great support from, from, social, from social workers and others and realize that, again, it's not just treating the, the disease itself, it's treating the individual child and their family as, as a unit. What about when English is a second language? Yeah, another huge challenge, which technology can play a role. We're often bringing translators in in person and by phone, but now projects out of Google and others, you can literally translate on your smartphone in almost in real time. So we're having some enabling tools and technologies, including how you educate a, a child or a parent about their disease. They can visualize it now in, in 3D on their tablet. Um, they can play video games, one developed by Hope Labs, with, for, particularly for adolescent uh, patients, uh, cancer patients, often weren't staying on top of the medications. They could play a, go- a game called Remission, where they would literally you know, you know, shoot the, the cancer cells and try and raise up their white blood cell counts. And that actually had a beneficial response in terms of taking the medications and eventually on survival. So lots of ways to engage and need to engage folks with who they are, including their age, language, culture. And also to put it in context of, particularly in pediatric cancers, this is where we've made the most progress in cancer in general that's just translated to cancer in general, that in pediatric oncology cancer specifically, we probably made the biggest gains in cancer across the field, which have now translated from kids to adults. And part of the reason is because almost every child, at least in the United States and Europe, is part of a clinical trial. They're treated in academic centers. And every child helps add to the the data and is part of a trial, even though maybe the pretty standard treatment, we may tweak path A versus path B, slightly modifying a medication or anti-nausea element. And that keeps advancing the field. In the early 1960s, 80% of children with the most common form of cancer uh, called pediatric ALL or acute lymphoblastic leukemia died. Now it's 90 plus percent are surviving long term. And that's because almost every child's been on a trial. In contrast, in the adult cancer world, I think it's less than 20 percent are part of any academic trial. And so one of the big potentials is to take lessons from the pediatric world, apply it to adult and crowdsource, enable almost anybody to be a data donor, whether they're fully involved in a clinical trial or donating the genome from their cancer. Uh, lots of ways we're going to um, help all ships rise in, this, in the world of, of uh, approaching cancer, including picking it up early. You know, we 
we know in, in, in most cancers, including in children, they present with late-stage disease. It might be late-stage leukemia, lymphoma, ovarian, prostate, uh, pancreatic in the adult world. If we can pick it up early, that's the stage where we can make a, a big difference. I'm involved in a new Cancer XPRIZE uh, that we're developing, uh, xprize.org slash cancer, where we're going to hopefully launch in 2018 a new XPRIZE for new ways of cheap, early, and accurate uh, cancer screening that can be applied from Tennessee to Tanzania for under $24, for under 24 hours, as easy as a urine dipstick for pregnancy. That's our sort of uh, guiding sort of vision uh, that can make a difference across the, the cancer spectrum here in the developing world and around the planet. When you first became a pediatric oncologist, they said, okay, here are the odds. We just talked about leukemia here. Here are the odds. Here's the general prognosis to today. What's changed other than leukemia in terms of outlook? Well, leukemia, lymphoma, the solid tumors, the whole field of cancer is shifting quite dramatically in this new era of, of big data omics, um, machine learning, targeted therapeutics, immunotherapy. We're now not just looking at that, uh, let's say, leukemia or other tissue underneath the microscope and saying, oh, it's T-cell ALL, T-cell ALL or B-cell, two subtypes of leukemia. We're now sequencing it. We're now able to look at all the proteins on the surface and start to apply, again, the crowdsourcing of thousands of patients to understand what the risk might be, who's a high-risk patient, who's a low-risk, um, and to do that in real time. Now that with the explosion of all these biomarkers and genomic pathways, it's nothing that I as an oncologist or even a whole team can necessarily wrap their heads around. So we're starting to apply artificial intelligence and machine learning to hope, hopefully help with both the diagnostics and picking the right cocktail of therapeutics. And as we're moving into this really exciting era of sort of amino-oncology, uh, how to uh, apply that at the right form, or even identify cancer stem cells, which often seem to be the bad actors, and hopefully take cancer from what's often a death sentence to something that, like an HIV, has moved to being a death sentence to more of a chronic disease, where it's treated with a cocktail of, of medications that can keep it at bay for life. Were we guessing before what was metastatic, what was not, what was fast-paced, what was not? Not always guessing, but We'd often wait for a patient to relapse when they had a big lump or, you know... That's not good. (laughs) Or leukemia cells coursing through their veins. Now in the sort of molecular era, we can find that one in 10 million cells circulating through the blood that might indicate that that leukemia or other, in the case of leukemia, is coming back uh, so that we can sort of whack it down again earlier. Uh, Same thing now with the ability that we have transformed the era of prenatal testing. Instead of doing amniocentesis, many young mothers uh, or mothers early in gestation are not having a sample of their um, amniotic fluid analyzed for cells from the fetus, but we can look at circulating DNA uh, and determine does that um, unborn child still potentially have a, a genetic disorder like Down syndrome or others. That same technology is being applied to looking at circulating DNA that might be shed from tumors. So there's several companies, one called Grail, uh, one called Gardent, um, and others that are starting to look at that um, process so that we can hopefully not just pick up relapse of cancers, but diagnose it super early from a blood biopsy, as simple as a blood test. And that, again, is going to be quite transformative across, across the world of oncology. All of these things have been emergent here, but the rate of change is a little difficult to predict. What will the pediatric oncology patient be like five years from now? Sometimes it's not about newer chemotherapy or T-cell immunotherapy elements and some of the exciting, you know, 
therapies, but the wrapper we can provide around the patient and their family and connecting the dots, the sort of digital wrappers, this year of digital health, we're starting to see the first advent of sort of apps that can help support the patient and their family. One of the most common uh, side effects of giving chemotherapy today to a child or adult is that their blood cell, the white blood cell counts go down and they might get a fever and an infection. And we spend a lot of time and money tracking them down and getting blood cultures and bringing them to the hospital and giving antibiotics. What if you could send them home with a little wearable patch that tracks their temperature and an app that can see changes in behavior early, proactively get them uh, taking antibiotic before they end up with sepsis, you know, which can be deadly? How do we provide the, the family and the patient tools to understand the disease, stay on top of their uh, medication and other elements and personalize that and have these feedback loops that are there? So a lot of healthcare is still driven by fax machine. It's very inefficient. You're still making phone calls and on hold to get that follow-up visit. I think we can connect the dots in smart ways, particularly in the oncology world, to improve outcomes. In fact, um, a colleague I trained with at Mass General, Ethan Bash, they published early in 2017 that an app that helped track patients' symptoms and how they were doing and provided the feedback loop to clinicians improved survival dramatically, you know, as, as, as more or better than some drugs. So this digital wrapper, I think, will be applicable for kids with cancer and adults and in, in many diseases. I love this vision. You know, once we detect it, you enter the digital space. We're going to monitor you 24-7. Yeah, this area of connected, mobile, digital health, again, as I've said before, those are all buzzwords. We'll just soon call it health but it does, or, or medicine, but it does give us the ability to be more proactive and connected and to use that explosion of data, whether it's your sleep, your omics, uh, whether you open your pill bottle or not, uh, and, and use that data to personalize prevention, diagnostics, and therapy. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Myra. Dr. Daniel Kraft is chief correspondent of TechNation Health and the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. Every day in the United States, 43 children are diagnosed with cancer. It affects all genders, all ethnicities, and all socioeconomic groups. And over 30,000 children are currently in treatment. The National Cancer Institute is one of 27 institutes at NIH. There are 12 active studies underway on various types of childhood cancer, with nine in active recruitment at the NIH Research Hospital in Bethesda, Maryland. Information about potential participation in ongoing childhood cancer studies at the Clinical Center at NIH is available at cc.nih.gov. That's cc.nih.gov. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.